Welcome to the Shilak Kam Extractive Podcast as we continue our conversation on the notion of ESG. My guest today is Catherine Fletcher. Catherine is a director in Control Risks ESG Practice and leads the Social Risk and Compliance Team for the Middle East and Africa. Catherine helps companies across all sectors to measure, manage, and mitigate human and labor rights risks in their operations and supply chains to ensure compliance with local legislation and to help them strive towards international best practice. I had the pleasure of meeting Catherine recently at the mining in Daba, where we struck a conversation. So Catherine, welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. It's very nice to have you. Thank you very much, Sheila, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Okay, then. So uh, since risk and specifically social risk is your area of uh, Focus. Can you define for us what we mean by social risk, especially in the context of ESGs? Yes, absolutely. So for me, this is all about um, impacts on, on people. And those people can be employees, workers, um, can also be communities or really any um, sort of stakeholder uh, that can be impacted by a company's Um, operations. And it doesn't have to be negative impacts, there can also be positive impacts. But I think uh, of particular concern should be the negative impacts, because we obviously want businesses to be um, socially responsible when they are conducting their operations. So when we think about employees, it's around employment practices and labor rights, making sure that employees are getting everything that they're entitled to under their contract, under the local labor law, that they are working in safe and healthy environments. Um, When we think about communities, it can be issues around um, land rights or um, just sort of community relations with uh, a local presence, um, you know, for example, a mining company. Um, Indigenous peoples, for example, are making sure that their rights are being respected. So it's broad. It, it is a broad topic, and I certainly won't pretend to be an expert on everything, um, but I think it's it's good to see that now these issues that have been around for a very long time are being included under the umbrella of umbrella of ESG um, and getting lots of attention, which is exactly what they deserve. That's lovely. So uh, the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast is, of course, very specifically interested in ESGs as relates to uh, mineral oil and gas projects. So if we look at these projects, uh, can you zoom in on some of what you call the issues uh, and how they manifest themselves in a risky uh, manner? In other words, who is at risk here? Is, is it the communities? Is it the projects? What lens are you looking at risk in the uh, social context in mining projects? Um. I would I would just say that these risks always overlap. So, for example, the risks of negative impacts on people often become risks towards companies' operations, their reputations, legal compliance. So I, I feel like it's not possible to separate them out. And I can give you an example of that, where, for example, if you have a, a local community that is uh, very unhappy with the way that it is interacting with a local mining company that can lead to community tensions it can escalate to violence and that will ultimately um, lead to operational disruptions so for example we've seen roads that have been blockaded by a community to prevent 
vehicles from accessing uh, a mine site. Now, in the worst cases where really human rights are being breached, then that can become, as I mentioned, um, reputational issues and risks for a company, all the way up to uh, to lawsuits, which we've also seen being raised against mining firms. So my argument is always address the risks um, from whatever aspect you want to look at them, because they're all interconnected anyway. So um, talking of uh, risk, of course, the most important thing, I guess, about any risk is that in the first instance, you are aware of it. Uh, but also that you can rate the extent to which it may or may not become manifest. And finally, the extent to which, if it manifests, it can adversely impact the, the, the company. And, and at the moment, uh, we, we use ESG ratings to assess compliance. How effective are these ratings in helping uh, companies assess risk and investors assess risk as related to projects in which they put money? something that I, I spend a lot of time talking to clients about because ESG risk ratings or ESG ratings were really designed by the investment community to measure the potential risk um, of negative impacts on a financial return. So on the financial performance of an investment. And that means that they're not looking at the topic from the uh, sort of perspective of, of impacts on people on, you know, on communities, on workers, whatever it might be. It's thinking about what is the impact to the financial return of the company as a result of these things. And it's a, it's a small but significant difference because what you don't want is a situation where a company is really trying to get very good ESG ratings because it guarantees a good financial return. You want companies to be managing the risks against people, against communities and workers, because that is the right thing to do. And it's the right thing for, um, for all of those affected people and also for the business itself. So there's a, there's a slight difference. Um, and I think where it matters most is when it comes to, as you said, understanding the risks that are relevant to your business. If you take a pure ESG rating lens, you may miss some of the risks that are really very salient to, to your business and its operations. Um, so financially, you might be on sort of sound footing or think you are, but you might be missing some of the risks that are out there and they are relevant and should also be being addressed. And as I just said before, if you don't manage those risks, you may find that there are negative impacts on the business down the long, in the long run anyway. Um, so I, I always sort of advocate not just focusing in on ESG ratings, but taking a broader view on risks, and there's lots of different ways that companies can do that. Hmm. So um, I want to revisit this rather subtle, but uh, what sounds to me like a very important distinction, because it seems to me uh, that you know companies can choose how they use the ratings. Uh, one, uh, they can use them really to pump their own performance financially whether it's uh, driving stock or whether it's attracting, uh, you know, cheaper capital, etc. But what you're saying is that is important, but really shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be on the materiality of the risk and understanding it. And if your ratings are good, but actually you are still not understanding the material risk to your company, 
uh, even if the benefits seem to come through, are you suggesting, uh, Catherine, that that short-term view is not sustainable? Absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's a short-term view. And when I think about sustainability of businesses in, in the widest sense of the term, it is about making sure that the things that you do as a company mean that you can last forever. And you can't take a short-term view if you want to achieve sustainability in the long term. So, I mean, there are, there are so many examples, and I, I won't name names, but there are so many examples of companies that have um, gone through an ESG rating process and been given a you know, AAA rating only then to find that there are serious allegations coming out of their um, companies or the supply chains around, for example, labor rights abuses, environmental issues. So I, I would really caution companies against assuming that ESG ratings are a, a kind of a gold stamp on their business and they don't need to do anything further. It's it's just being shown to not be the case. Mm. What of uh, the, the notion of self-reporting? There are mechanisms that companies use to self-report uh, and also to declare you know, openly where they think there is risk. How, how effective are these and, and how well do they balance, uh, if you wish, ESG ratings in helping uh, companies and others appreciate the level of social risk? Self-reporting has a role to play. And then the nice thing about self-reporting is that if it means you have people within your company that are focusing on these issues and really taking the time to get into the, the company's data because companies always hold information that is useful around these topics. Um, you know, you can look at uh, sort of human rights, human resources information around payroll, around your workforce statistics and those sorts of things. Um, you can look at your carbon emissions as a business. So that data exists. And it's actually, I think, a good idea to have somebody inside the company that is focusing on, on reporting and putting that into um, public facing documents, you know, sustainability reports and so on. I would caveat that there is a risk around selective reporting when it's being done um, by a company. And I I always am a little bit skeptical when I see that the sustainability head is also the head of marketing, for example, because that to me gives you a, a <laughs> suggestion and it does happen a lot. <laughs> um, I recommend you have a look at these uh, sort of you know job profiles, but um, you do see people who seem to see sustainability as something which is around um, telling a good story and attracting investment. And they're not necessarily focusing on fixing problems. In my mind, marketing and sustainability don't really belong um, together. Um, so that's why I would sort of caution that when it comes to self-reporting, I think it really needs to be transparent and comprehensive. And for me, a good sustainability report is one that points to problems as well as the good news stories. I would really you know, appreciate seeing more companies acknowledging that they have had an issue around child labor or forced labor, and they know that there's an issue in their supply chain, but they're working really hard to address it. This is what they're aiming for. This is their timeline, and this is what they're doing and the steps that they're taking to get there. To me, that shows a really mature um, approach to these topics. So uh, when you say that uh, uh, combining the marketing function, which is really a 
you know, self-saving exercise, if you wish, and one that is, you know, by definition intended to portray uh, a positive and hopefully accurate picture with sustainability, which is really about not looking, it's not about looking good or bad, it's just about looking at, you know, best practice in terms of ESGs. You know, Catherine, that makes sense on the face of it, but I'm going to uh, challenge you a little and say this. If you look at the whole uh, picture in terms of why companies do what they do, it's really to promote themselves fundamentally. It, it, there's a level of uh, self-interest which is inherent. You know, isn't combining marketing and sustainability just a function of all that? Can we really presume, uh, in other ways, that companies are altruistic in any way? That's a very interesting question. It's a very uh, thought-provoking question as well. I think, for me, the difference is... Um, it would be like combining marketing with with another function like legal and compliance or something like that. It just doesn't it doesn't sort of make sense to me that the function that is there to promote the business and attract new investment or new customers um, is also thinking about impacts on people. There's a real sort of subject matter expertise that needs to sit in that sustainability function. And I, it's quite possible that that can be matched alongside um, marketing skills, which are also very separate. But I do, I just wonder, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that I think roles have been created in recent years to focus on ESG when maybe those roles um, are not being filled by people that have the depths of expertise to really make a difference if they find a problem. Um, versus being able to sort of gloss over issues. And, you know, this concept of greenwashing is not going away and it's being challenged more and more by, um, by NGOs, by activist shareholders. So I, I would almost say that you can have more credibility in your sustainability function if it is separate from the marketing function, because then you're showing that they are not the same thing. Mm. So... Uh... We see limitations in the self-reporting, but we also see limitations in the uh, over-reliance, if you wish, on ESG ratings. So given these limitations, what should investors do? Uh, and for that matter, consumers, to ensure that the information that they receive is robust and can stand to scrutiny with respect to the genuine level of potential social risk? What's the balance, Catherine? For companies, my advice would be take a multifaceted approach. Don't simply rely on one single um, reporting mechanism or, or way of looking into these issues. If you take them all in isolation, there are flaws with everything. So, for example, if you look at third-party assurance audits or any kind of third-party programme, um, that can be criticised as, as not finding the issues. Then again, if you just look at self-reporting, as we mentioned already, then you may not um, get the full depth of, of, of details. ESG ratings, as we said, also have their own issues. But I think in combination, all of those things are useful. And the idea being that you are trying to, if you're really taking it seriously, the idea of, of ESG and sustainability, by taking all of those different approaches together, you will find the gaps and the issues and the red flags and be able to tackle them. Um, I think for consumers, I would urge everybody to do their research and just to find out um, 
how seriously a company is, is taking its commitments. I think it's really easy for companies to make grand statements about um, you know, their procurement processes or their workforce, um, sort of treatment of workers and things like that. But you know, if you see a news report or uh, articles alleging problems, then I, I sort of tend to follow those reports and see where they lead because quite often um, the responses from the companies are unsatisfactory. I've seen, for example, in the past, there was an interesting case, it was actually in manufacturing rather than mining, where allegations had come to light around forced labor, but it was in the company's supply chain, sort of further down the supply chain. And the response at the time was, well, we don't directly employ these workers, so it's really not our fault. And I think that to me gives an indication of, of how the company views this issue because a really responsible company is going to accept that this is their supply chain. They've procured these companies. It's their contract ultimately that's being fulfilled. And therefore it is their responsibility, even if their names are not on the contracts or you know, for the, for the workers and things like that. So I think there are clues out there for consumers um, to educate themselves. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, you, you are, of course, steeped in the profession. So, you know, words and phrases come naturally to you. I suspect some of the followers of the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast will not be conversant with the notion of greenwashing. Do you just want to tell us what greenwashing means and why, uh, you know, it, it, in your view, is potentially the debate around it is on the rise? It's a term that is being thrown around a lot. Um, <clears throat> and with good reason, because I think a lot of companies have realized that there is a section of investors, but also consumers who want to spend their money wisely and they want to make um, educated decisions around their purchases or procurement process, whatever it might be. And so it does become part of the, the sales pitch almost to say whether it's around um, you know, carbon emissions and the fact that a company is carbon neutral or whether it's around um, using recycled products or sort of zero waste approaches, as many things that companies will, will talk about. Um, when it becomes greenwashing is where those claims are sort of proven to be really misleading or, or just factually incorrect. And again, there have been examples of this recently. Um, I, I won't name names, but this was a manufacturer of a plant-based milk um, that had made claims around its carbon footprint, which were investigated and challenged by activist shareholders and found to be substantially untrue or exaggerated. And I think for me, the, you know, at the heart of greenwashing is, is really selling a product or selling a company on the basis of environmental claims that either have no basis or are just exaggerated to, to be uh, attractive to, to external parties. Yeah, I guess uh, whatever one uh, yeah, experiences a surge in a particular phenomenon, in this case, the ESG, and, and benefits begin to be identified uh, that are associated with compliance, it shouldn't surprise us that some roguish element will try and, and make uh, and benefit unfairly from that. Uh, so in that sense, are there watchdogs uh, who... who who calls these people uh, to order and uh, who sets the standards to be able to say you are greenwashing? In other words, you know, what are we doing about the problem now that we become aware of it? Countries, there are um, 
sort of government bodies potentially that are involved in this, you know, um, advertising standard agencies and, and things like that. I think what is more useful is that um, sort of civil society NGO um, sector, which can be very vocal and really do call out what they think is, is greenwashing when they see it in, in uh, annual reports and things like that. Um, but as I mentioned, activist shareholders are, are hugely influential now, um, you know, because they're buying into companies with a very strong agenda around making sure that the company does deliver on its promises or, or, or take certain decisions that the activist shareholders think are better for the environment or better for um, sort of stakeholders, whether that's affected communities or workers or anybody else. And those activist shareholders are the ones who are holding companies to account following up, applying pressure. Um, and I think really that is going to be, we're going to see more of that. In my mind, that is going to be where things continue to progress. Mm. So, it, you know, it, it's one thing to mitigate risk. It's another to comply. Uh, it's another, for that matter, to, you know, uh, act responsible. So I was wondering more about impacts. What are we seeing, if at all, in terms of the impacts that the ESG uh, you know, drive is having on uh, the social environment, or for that matter, the actions of uh, companies which we think might lead to a more positive outcome. Or the kind of the rise of the ESG as a concept is, is only a good thing, even though there may be some companies who are paying lip service to a concept and don't necessarily buy into it wholeheartedly. I think the having a sort of a spotlight shone on these topics can only be a good thing because it will increase pressure on companies to do the right thing. Um, and when it comes to impacts, there's no getting away from the fact that every company on the planet is having impacts of some sort. What we should be aiming for is as many positive impacts as possible, because wouldn't it be great to have a company that is delivering what it says it will do in terms of its particular function or its or its role, if you like, in, in existing, but is also bringing benefits to other people as well. So I think that is what we should be striving for. And this is not to say that companies should be sort of taking the place of governments in terms of providing social protections or any other kind of benefits, but it just seems like it should be a win-win situation for everybody. And I think that's what we, that's what we would optimistically aim for. Hmm. When you think of uh, the ESGs, whether it is the reporting aspect or the risk assessment aspect, or for that matter, compliance, when you think of it in the context of a mining environment, for instance, versus manufacturing, are there glaring differences or do you think there are more similarities than there are differences? Very specific um, context around the mining and extractives uh, sort of industry where the, the, the ESG risks are different. I think a lot of that has to do with the kind of um, the development phase of projects, for example, where a manufacturing site may be built in an industrial area and there may be some impacts there around land use um, and, and resettlement and things like that but the footprint of a mining site is so huge that inevitably those impacts can be bigger i think the longevity of some of these sites as well means that 
you know, something called um, FPIC, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is the, the free and prior informed consent, is something that can be taken at the beginning of a, a life cycle of a project in the exploration phase, for example. But if that mine continues to expand over decades and decades, then those communities will continue to be impacted in a different way and and the size and scale of that impact will also grow. I don't think that's necessarily the same for manufacturing. And in fact, if you look at some of the um, ESG related standards that exist, and I'll take um, SASB, which I'm again, I'm sure you're familiar with, but that is the uh, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, their, their standards that they have. If you look at the difference between the standard that they have for uh, metals and mining versus, for example, manufacturing of electronic equipment, they're quite different. And what stands out for me is that the metals and mining standard has a whole section on security, human rights and the rights of indigenous peoples and community relations and labor relations uh, and, and workforce health and safety. So those topics are front and center of the ESG standard for this industry. And they're not uh, prevalent or as high profile in the same way for manufacturing. Mm. So it, it's fair to say, isn't it, uh, Catherine, that uh, we've been here before, which is to say a lot of the issues that fall under the umbrella of uh, ESG have been tackled in some form or other in the past. And you remind me when you reference the, the concept of free informed and prior consent. And, and I'm wondering, given that we have always been, uh, well, perhaps not always, but in recent times, we've always paid attention to the environment, we've paid attention to human rights and, and worker rights, et cetera. What is it that you, in your view, is different about the ESG approach to these things? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, isn't it? Because it sort of feels like ESG is just the evolution of, of many things that came before it. And in fact, um, if you remember uh, PPP, which was People, Planet and Profits, that was sort of an early iteration of ESG. So as I mentioned before, ESG was really coined as a term by the investment sector but a lot of the things that it's looking at were previously being looked at by sustainability functions or development functions or, or any sort of um, CSR, you know, used to be a term that was coined a lot more. Um, I think the point around this is that actually it doesn't matter. To me, it doesn't matter too much what we call it. I think what's more important is that these topics continue to be focused on by companies, by the entities that are having those impacts. Um, and if anything, you know, it's it's good that it's becoming less optional than it used to be to think about these things. And the more legislation that is brought in around ESG due diligence, human rights due diligence, the better, because then it becomes a level playing field where everybody has to comply and really make an effort to tackle some of these global problems. Hmm. So here's a final question to you. So we've got the environmental aspect, we've got the social aspect. And we've got uh, the governance aspect. Um, can we speak of any one of them being more important than the other? Are they all the same, uh, or or does it even matter at all, Catherine? I'm going to give my personal view, which is that you can't separate them out. <laughs> That's probably not very helpful, but um, and I'll give you a good example as to why. 
if we if we say that ESG and all the different sort of parts of ESG are about companies and how they run their operations, then to me, it's highly unlikely that you can have a company that is really excelling in one space and failing in another. Because you know, if you take governance as an example, um, a company that is failing to manage anti-bribery and corruption um, sort of measures, are they likely to be really operating brilliantly on, on the environment or on social issues as well? It seems quite unlikely. There was an example in the UK of a, a clothing manufacturing company which was found to have very serious uh, forced labor within its supply chain. And that was a huge, uh, huge topic across the news, um, not just in the UK, but I think even beyond worldwide. The worldwide, exactly. And I think what was really interesting was that after the news quietened down a little bit, maybe people sort of went on to other things. I followed the story and the next thing that came out was that the same company also had issues around um, fraud and uh, money laundering, which is government. So this is this is kind of what I'm saying about these things being interconnected. And if you're thinking about the health and the performance of a company overall, then you know one ESG sort of say say the E is good and the S is bad. To me, that means that the whole company needs to be looked at quite seriously. I think you make a very valid point. In other words, a company is either well run run responsibly, manages risk very well, or, it, or it, it's not. You, it, it cannot exactly. do uh, yeah. any one of those as a compartment. It's, it's either the way we do things because this is the culture of the corporation or uh, it is not. Well, Catherine, uh, I think that's a good note to end our conversation. Thank you very much for your time uh, and I appreciate you joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Well, you're really welcome, Sheila. Thank you.